0: Virginia Poverty Law Center, this is The Justice Report. I'm your host, James Bakhtiari.
1: And I'm Salam Butti. We're just two dudes working the nonprofit life, trying to do what we can to make Virginia a better place for everyone.
0: And to make sense of the systemic barriers that keep some communities perpetually behind by speaking with the advocates, academics, lawmakers, and voices from the streets. You know, the very people in these communities up against the odds.
1: The Davids versus the Goliaths.
0: The Spartans versus the Persians.
1: The Muslims versus the Meccans. Avengers against Thanos.
0: Neo against the Agents. Domino's versus Pizza Hut. Generic versus brand name. You know... Speaking of generic conversation, how's your winter treating you?
1: (laughs) I didn't even have time to think about winter. I'm still trying to figure out where March went. I want my spring and summer back, Jam. I want a refund. I demand to speak with the manager.
0: Bruh, you need to chill out. You're starting to turn into a Karen.
1: Oh my God, you nipped it in the bud, man. That was a close call. Thanks for getting me out of that mental space, Jam.
0: Anytime, I'm here for you, buddy. But yeah, how's your winter going? Man, I was not ready for this cold weather. I want to put on a sweater, pour myself some tea, and just cuddle up in bed with my biceps and my guitar and watch some Netflix at this point. Oh, sounds great. Do you have any good show recommendations? Twitter will not shut up about this show called The Queen's Gambit. So I'm thinking about maybe giving that a shot later this week. You know, I. I had to
1: leave Twitter because it was so crazy, and that's the trend that made me leave. So, like, I saw the first episode, and let me tell you, man, it's really hard to believe. You're telling me that an affluent white woman in the 1950s tragically dies, and there's no family to look after her daughter?
0: I'm just having trouble buying it, man. Uh, Spoiler alert. I'm just trying to see a mid-century orphan girl defy expectations and misogynistic gender norms by kicking some butt in chess. Well then go off my friend. Let me know if you recommend it after watching it. And you know what, speaking of completely kick buck women, we have a special treat for our listeners today.
1: No wait, I'm sorry. Jim, what does kick buck women mean? Are we kicking buck women? Do I need to pull up UrbanDictionary.com to figure out what yutes these days are talking about?
0: No, I was just trying to self-censor, you know, with this being a family program and all. But now the kids are going to think we're advocating for kick... You know what? Let's just move on. Today,
1: we're speaking with a kick-butt lady, LaSherese Aired, delegate for Virginia's 63rd District, Virginia Legislative Black Caucus member, worker, mother, and all-around inspiration for any legislators and
0: wannabes listening to the show. We simply have no choice but to stand. We will speak to the good delegate about Brianna's Law, COVID relief, and other special session priorities. So Salam, wind up that tape. It's time to get started. This is the Justice Report.
1: We begin a quick recap. This is the much anticipated part two of a series that began with Delegate Jeff Bourne. It was born with Bourne many moons ago, where we spoke with him about special session. Today, we speak with Delegate Laird to do a report back on Virginia's special legislative session.
0: But let's do a quick debrief on why we even have special sessions. Virginia typically makes laws during the normal session, which spans January and February on odd-numbered years and January, February, and half of March on even-numbered years. As
1: many of you can imagine, this is not exactly a long time to get the hard work of lawmaking done. As such, the legislature can choose to extend their regular session and or convene later in the year to address additional issues not covered in normal
0: session. With 2020 being as historic as ever, Virginia's legislative body convened a special session in August to hear legislation pertaining to some of the most important topics facing the Commonwealth, namely how we can protect Virginians in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and how Virginia would address and take part in a national reckoning on racism and white supremacy. Joining us today to help make sense of all this is Delegate LaCherise Ayrd, representing Virginia's 63rd District. Welcome back to the show today, Delegate.
2: I'm just glad I didn't do anything bad and I got an invitation back. I'm so looking forward to the
0: conversation. The invitation is always open to you. We love having you on our show Um, and you're going to help us kind of break down what happened this past legislative session on this episode. Does that sound good to you?
2: I'm looking forward to it. We had a... 83 marathon day special uh, session. And so there is a lot to cover and I'm hoping we can make sense of it all for your listeners.
0: Yep. Yep. So starting off, there were a number of priorities from stopping evictions to utility shutoffs to unemployment benefits that were uh, goals that we had to help lessen the impact of the pandemic and the economic fallout from that pandemic of Virginians. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what was resolved, what got done in the special session to help Virginians in this time.
2: You know, I think that we did a number of things on the policy side, but I have to just start with the budget. You know, it has been a bit of Tourette's relative to our economic stability here in the Commonwealth. Are we financially stable? Are we in a crisis financially? You know, trying to figure out what to do with federal CARES dollars. And I really think the big winner here is what we were able to accomplish with the budget. We had, uh, and we have had a huge crisis occurring here in the Commonwealth relative to evictions, individuals who were literally on the verge of losing their homes and becoming homeless. And as a result of the use of care dollars, CARES dollars in the budget, we were able to really put um, additional resources in place so that tenants and/or property owners can really uh, try to resolve past due financial issues with a tenant prior to evicting them, and I just think that's huge because that really is the at the crux of the matter when we talk about people suffering during this pandemic. In addition to that, I would. You know, I have to say one of my key issues uh, was centered around uh, utility expenses and families that were now you. we've got you in a position where you can keep your home. But now, how are you going to pay your utility bills, both water and electricity? And we were able to adopt emergency debt repayment plans on the policy side through the budget. But then also use CARES dollars to give to jurisdictional and non-jurisdictional utilities to ensure that families who are just having a hard time and they are trying to balance their expenses, they have additional support there. Now, that works a little differently, whereas that's not money directly in the hands of individuals, but it is going to those localities uh, and to those utility companies that have uh, accounts of individuals that are past due.
1: I had a question about the uh, utility shutoffs. W- what does that look like practically for somebody who um, is was either going through a really hot summer and their electricity was about to get shut off uh, and they would have lost air conditioning to now where we're hitting into a cold winter and they don't wanna lose their heat. So if they are at risk, what, where do they go to get that help?
2: Yes, that's a great question. So I will answer this question in two ways. I will say that the Department of Social Services have, for a long period of time has had resources if you are in an income bracket, generally speaking, um, or consistency, consistently where you can't afford your um you can't afford to keep your heat on, you can't afford that air conditioner, uh, especially in an emergency and they'll be supportive. Relative to what we passed during this past session, you know, this emergency debt repayment plans, it makes it so that you should not be disconnected if you are unable to pay that expense, uh, particularly because we are still actively in this pandemic. From a lot of the uh, utility companies that we talked to while developing this policy, they made mention that they have payment plans uh, and they they want to make sure that their folks aren't hurting. What I like most about this uh, policy that we passed is that you know not only are you not to be disconnected, but you're not supposed to be uh, accruing interest. You're not supposed to have to pay a down payment to get into one of these payment plans and you should be able to spread out any costs that you have over the period of 24 months to make it so that it's actually affordable. Oftentimes you can get into a payment plan for six months or 12 months, but you're already having a hard time you are collecting unemployment. And so that payment might not be low enough for you to afford it with your extra expenses. And so for the everyday person, this policy now allows the utility companies to go a bit further than where they were previously. And so uh, a citizen who's having that type of emergency can definitely reach out again to their utility entity and make sure that they are able to take advantage of these emergency plans that are in place now.
0: So, Delegate, before we move on to the racial justice agenda for the special session, we talked a lot about the measures that were taken to lessen the impact of COVID. You mentioned a lot just now. In your opinion, did those measures go far enough or is there more that you think the legislature should do to help citizens in Virginia?
2: I think that there is more than we, that we can do to help citizens in Virginia. You know, the hard part about governing is the need to achieve consensus, right? And so you just have a variety of people who have different constituencies and different perspectives on how we should approach some of these issues. And I think that makes it very difficult. Um, Now, I don't want that to be mistaken as me being unhappy with what we did accomplish. Um, I'm very proud of what we were able to do, but we still just have an incredible uh, population of people that are still suffering that are still in need. And I don't say this simply anecdotally. I still have people calling my office about unable to being unable to collect their unemployment benefits. I still have people, you know, reaching out just because of hard times they are experiencing generally, and so this is a real thing. And that brings me to the point that you know, the policy measures that we've passed, they'll go into effect on March first. But then also even for the rental relief programs even for the new utility programs, uh, we don't do a great job at marketing. And so for the people who need some of this assistance the most, they don't often even know that they have this as a resource until they're actually in a crisis. And so we have not only uh, the need to do more and go further, uh, because it will take us some time until we are actually out of this pandemic, um, but then also we need to make sure we're doing a better job of making sure that our most vulnerable populations are aware of the resources available to them.
0: And what you just said about marketing these things rang so true to me. I'm a organizer with the utility team, team at VPLC, as the two of you know. And as these new uh, th- things in the budget came down to protect people from utility shutoffs, I'm finding myself compiling huge lists of faith leaders, of social workers from around the state, just so I can reach out to them and let them know, on that if their congregants or if their clients are suffering or at risk of a utility shut off or fear that these resources are available. um, And it just is an overcomes a hugely uh, cumbersome task just making these lists and connecting with these faith leaders. So that definitely rings true from my perspective. Uh, But for the sake of time, I wanna transition a little bit in topics. Another crisis that we're facing in this country is white supremacy and racist violence. And there were a number of historic pieces of legislation that passed this session along those lines. But before we get into that, could you tell us a bit about everything that the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus was asking for, kind of the big picture of what you were asking for going into this session? And then after that, we'll get into what actually passed.
1: Uh, maybe oh. maybe maybe not everything. We only have a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what were the big things? What were the big things?
2: What I will say, I, I wanna start maybe the best word is philosophically or conceptually. I, I want to start with at the premise of everything we hope to the premise of everything we had hoped to accomplish during this session. It really is simply put ensuring complete and consistent for sure is an important words, fairness and equality in policing of all communities, of all individual, of all communities. It should not vary depending on the color of your skin. It should not vary depending on your zip code. It should not vary depending on your income level. Um, all of these things, and I should say it should not vary whether or not there's someone with a camera watching or not. And ultimately, at the core of when I look at the common thread between all of the policies we put forward, whether they passed or not, we're talking about equity here. We're talking about removing removing uh, uh, racial bias practices. We're talking about common sense human principles in how police conduct themselves. And so I could go through the laundry list of bills, but at the core of everything we put forward, that is what we were trying to accomplish because right now we are falling short of that.
1: So you mentioned laundry list. Big question. Did the laundry get cleaned with special session?
2: Let's say, a, 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 a huge amount of laundry did get cleaned, but we still have some uh, where we're applying some stain remover, and then we're going to try and, and wash it and, and get it done again. Get it washed through again in 2021.
1: <laughs> all right, all right. So you mentioned that there are you know racial um, biases in in the practices that police do. Uh, one of the big things that we see is that low income neighborhoods, which are largely a black majority, um, are policed. Really differently than a suburban area. Were there any bills that passed that helped address that?
2: I think so. You know, I want to draw attention to a bill that Delegate Hope had. Um, let me see if I can remember the name. I think that was House Bill 5109. Uh, no, not that one. Um, it's regarding pretextual stops, basically. And for your listeners, I assume they know what that is. But Pretextual stops is when um,
1: it's when oh, they stop you right before you start texting and driving. <laughs> right?
2: It could be that. It could be, oh, I smell uh, marijuana, so let me uh, pull you over to see if anything else is going on, or if my uh, smelling of marijuana means you're actually smoking it. Oh, you have a brake light that's out or your vehicle is too loud. These pretextual stops have common and historically been used to pull over Black people. Now, let me tell you why I really appreciate Delegate Holt bringing this bill forward. It's House Bill 5058. I appreciate him bringing it forward because he stated, and this is, quote, in his committee and in articles. So this is on the record. He says, as a white man who largely lives in a suburban community, I have never been stopped for one of these things. His bill goes through a whole list of pretextual stops that are commonly occurring in black and brown communities as a reason to pull you over. And he shared very passionately that he had no idea that this was even a thing no idea that this was a problem because it just has never been his experience. But he talked about every black person that he went and went to ask about this because he had begun to hear this was a thing. It was our norm. It is everything that has to do with our interaction with law enforcement. And, And so plain and simple, when you talk about how uh, communities are policed uh, in contrast from suburban to urban. This is one of the main measures that is used as uh, a, a reason to stop black and brown people.
1: Now, of this laundry list, one of the largest pieces of legislation uh, that we saw come through was the historic Brianna's law, which is colloquially known as Brianna's law., uh, can you break down what this law does and how does it protect Virginians?
2: Yes, thank you. Um, so, What's fascinating is, when I first brought this bill forward, I heard things like, this is a political stunt. I heard things like, we've never had this problem in Virginia, why do we have this bill here? And I think it is always important to give people the historical context, which is the use of no-knock search warrants has always been controversial, even going back to uh, the 70s during the Nixon administration. When this tactic originally began to be allowed, it was controversial then, It was causing harm to black and brown communities then. And they even for a short period of time disallowed its use. But because the war on drugs continued, they then allowed for the use of this tactic to go on. But if you do any small level of research, while the tragic of Breonna Taylor uh, was highlighted in such a way because it was so egregious, there are other incidents of death by both. Law enforcement and individuals, because of the use of the no-knock search warrant, there is incidents of the search warrant being over-applied in black and brown urban communities, largely in correlation with the search of drugs. Um, and so, when you narrow it down to what's happening in Virginia, there are a few specific points. Number one. The code is largely silent on the use of the no-knock search warrant. So there is no consistency of how our law enforcement um, agencies were currently using this practice. Um, and, And also, there was no tracking or monitoring of where these warrants were largely being applied for us to really know, is this a problem in Virginia or not? And so lastly, I will say the whole point of this is to ensure that as a human being, you get to decide how you're going to interact and engage with law enforcement. If law enforcement shows up at your door with a search warrant, you should have the right to choose, am I going to respond positively or negatively? And then law enforcement will respond accordingly. But with the use of the no-knock search warrant, particularly in a pro gun states where everybody has a gun, it not only puts law enforcement lives in danger, it also puts the lives of those they come in contact with um, in danger. And so from a proactive standpoint, from a, a, a an angle of trying to make sure the crises which happened uh, in Louisville, uh, unfortunately to Breonna Taylor, to ensure that does not happen in the Commonwealth, I believe this was a, a a strong measure of just good policing and not only uh, will save the lives of individuals, but will save the lives of law enforcement as well.
0: Um, now, now, Delegate, does, does this uh, legislation have an outright ban on no no-knock warrants or can law enforcement still go to a judge and get it approved?
2: So... Let's get into the nuts and bolts of this a little bit because I have a lot of opinions on the matter. I won't go through the full journey, but there is two answers to that question. So the standard becomes no law enforcement entity should seek or execute a no-knock search warrant. But there is a caveat that you can request for approval by a judge or magistrate, the use of a, um, I'm sorry, no, 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 let me clarify, not even, no. There is an outright ban on the use of the no-knock search warrant, but you can get approval by a judge or a magistrate to execute a search warrant generally, not the no-knock, but a search warrant generally outside of the daytime hours that are now also a requirement in the bill. And I have to clarify this because it was a point of contention and a point of confusion. When we have that language um, in the bill originally, the way it was drafted in the Senate, it read as though it was an exception to the ban, but we went back and specifically cleaned up that language. So it's clear that the exception is only for the hours of day where you are executing a search warrant that is not a no-knock. It is not an exception to the ban on the use of the no-knock search warrant. And I think that's really important to clarify. So in the Commonwealth, you cannot execute a no-knock search warrant, period.
1: Interesting. I, I, did, I did not know that little bit about the daytime provisions. Uh, so I, I'm really interested to see data on that. Uh, and, and you're going to see in the data, like, winter would have fewer warrants um, going out just because it's fewer daytime, daylight hours. Uh, so if you wanted, I don't know, maybe some police forces will be like, let's ban daylight savings time. So we have more time to <laughs> issue warrants but or whatever.
2: If you had, um, if you go back, there is floor debate specifically on this measure because in one version, I tried to define daytime hours specifically taking into account daylight savings hours, and I got so much pushback, so the language merely says daytime. And the reason why that's problematic, and so when I talk about this policy and what other states can do, there are two points that I mentioned. I mentioned the daytime being actually defined because, oh, is daytime 4 a.m. where technically I'm still possibly in my bed and Depending on what time of year, it's still dark outside, and is you know, daytime does that end at 6 p.m. Where during daylight savings time, it's technically also dark outside. I mean, all of these questions leave it up to interpretation by the law enforcement entity that's executing um, a search warrant, and and I find that to be highly problematic, which is why I wanted to define it, but we were not able to get that done. And then I think the other really important important point is for other people thinking of adopting um, this policy in their states is the 30 second pause. So this is so important. And actually, if there's anything I could have gotten done, this is what I would have wanted. And let me explain why. A lot of times you will hear the argument about the Breonna Taylor case specifically that, oh, it wasn't a no knock search warrant. Oh, officers knocked and then announced that debate happens. What is necessary is even though you don't have the no knocks being allowed anymore, what you often can get from law enforcement is a simultaneous knock and entering, which means I'm knocking I'm announcing and then I'm entering. You need a little bit of a pause there. And my recommendation is 30 seconds. That's what I tried for was unsuccessful because again, to the core principle of giving individuals the choice of how they're going to choose to number one, engage with law enforcement, but then also to gather themselves, right? So if I'm upstairs, if I am in a back room, Or if I am, you know, sleep even, give me an opportunity. It seems like 30 seconds might sound like a long time, but it's still really not. But it Mm -hmm. gives some opportunity for those individuals on the other side of that door a chance to quickly get composure that someone's at my door, someone's trying to get my attention. Um, There was a huge debate about this putting the lives of law enforcement you know, at risk. But again, I would say 30 seconds isn't a lot of time and that would prevent this simultaneous knocking and entering, um, which we really is the core of what we want to prevent.
1: You know, the, the Brianna Taylor um, incident was a perfect storm of every single issue. Um, and not just on the race matter, but also gun ownership where you have a right to own a gun you have a right to defend yourself. And when somebody breaks into your home, you have a right to use your gun to defend yourself. So with a no-knock warrant, we saw that, you know, these plainclothes officers had broken to the wrong home and the, uh, Breonna Taylor's partner, you know, opened fire. Yes. And he, uh, that was entirely his right. Yes. Um, and so we saw, of course, a big silence as well from gun rights advocates uh, on his behalf. That's right. Uh, so what, How you know what were what was um, the response uh, when it came to uh, putting this law out?
2: So um, I want to mention that one of the additional elements that's present in this law is now the requirement that when you are executing a search warrant of any form, you not only have to audibly identify your authority to do so, but your appearance has to be in uniform um, as a law enforcement officer so that there isn't this confusion about what's actually occurring um, when that search warrant is being executed. And furthermore, we went one step further in making it so that that individual, um, that law enforcement officer Person has to read you or provide you a copy with that search warrant, and if you're not there, leave it affixed to a purely visible place. Um, because of everything that happened in the uh, situation dealing with Brianna Coleman, I will tell you I am especially grateful, actually, to the Chesterfield uh, County Police Chief because I learned that that police department actually hasn't used no-knock search warrants in decades. And when he explained why that was the case, it made perfect sense. Um, It went back to that principle around believing that we are more than equipped to deal with a situation should that individual, while executing a search warrant, decide they do not want to comply or they respond negatively. But ultimately, it should be the right of individuals. And so that this has been in that regard, one of the examples of law enforcement and advocates and policymakers being able to come together uh, and work on an issue of great significance and move it forward. Um, Now that's not to say that everyone was supportive, but we were able to get it done collectively.
0: Now, Delegate, you talked about principles, and as both of us know, legislation is not merely about getting practical results in the short term, but it can also be about envisioning and striving for a better society for everyone. What is your vision for Virginia's future?
2: Tearing down these systems in Virginia that still are representative of our racial foundation, and our racial past, and they permeate every system of uh, every system that is here in Virginia. Whether that's criminal justice, whether that's health, whether that's housing, transportation, there are still remnants of that racial past, um, very much present in what we and how we are conducting government right now. And my vision is that one by one, we not only tear down those systems but we rebuild those systems. And I will say specifically for me, that will be through the realm of education because I believe that is the core of how we will have a stronger commonwealth in the future. Uh, I I am looking forward to the 2021 session where I will have uh, three to four bills, quite frankly, on segregation in our commonwealth Uh, appropriate funding in our communities where there are concentrations of poverty um, and and trying to get at equitable and uh, fair uh, school division lines. Uh, And so that is one of the things I'm going to be prioritizing on this journey of trying to rebuild the systems here in our Commonwealth.
0: La Aird, thank you for all of your leadership on behalf of the entire Virginia Poverty Law Center. We look up to you and we stand with you uh, and thank you for being on the show. Do you have any last words for the audience?
2: I will just say that there is still a lot of work to be done here in our Commonwealth, as we just talked about and much of what we were able to accomplish during the special session was because of advocates like the Virginia Poverty Law Center, the many people who engage by way of protesting uh, and, and, and just interacting with their elected officials, although the special session will be, I mean, the, the, sh- the session that is coming up will be uh, another virtual session. I just ask that they keep their feet on the gas you know, don't let up because we have only begun to scratch the surface of the issues that need to be addressed. And the only reason some of these people are even responsive now is because of the pressure they felt from the public, because of the demands that were made from advocates and organizations like yours. And that presence is going to be, it's going to be needed just as much as we had into 2021. And so I just ask for the ongoing engagement and commitment to stay in this fight together.
0: Delegate thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: The Justice Report is a production of the Virginia Poverty Law Center broadcasting Wednesdays at 1230 p.m. on 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. This show is made possible with the support of listeners just like you. And if you wanted to re-listen to any of our shows, go on
1: to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. You can also rate and review The Justice Report, and of course, tell your family and friends about it too. And don't forget to tune in every Wednesday at 1230 p.m. And remember, it's never just us for justice. This is The Justice Report.
0: question mm. if we can't say kick butt how come i say kick butt like one sentence before in relation to the show <laughs> she says kicking some butt in chess oh really <laughs> yeah it says spoiler alert salam i'm not trying to see a mid-century orphan girl defy expectations and misogynistic gender norms by kicking some butt in chess i don't know man <laughs> <The> i <continuity> got <laughs> in these jokes <laughs>